Okay, so let's do this. Um, let's begin over here. Now, I, I, it'd be fun just to like make the whole long list, but we don't have time for that. Um, and if we can do this without like everybody shouting at the same time, because then it sounds like we're speaking in tongues, right? And I, don't, I don't know if that's so. Anyway, me, I'll just kind of like point to different sections and tell me where where your shirt came from. Somebody in here? Vietnam, Vietnam? great. Bangladesh, Bangladesh? Mexico, Mexico? Malaysia. Malaysia? Where's that? I don't know either. Um, Northern Marianas, maybe? How about somebody like right in here? China? China? El Salvador? Cool. Cambodia? Let's, let's shift over here a little bit. Indonesia? Turkey? Great. Tokuzel? Nicaragua? New Zealand? No way. Did you say USA? <laughs> Like the three people in the church that don't shop at Walmart. Good for you guys. Where do you go? Let's uh, maybe just a couple more. Over here. Any new ones over here? Peru. Peru. Sorry? Pakistan. Pakistan. Brazil. Brazil. Taiwan. Taiwan. Somebody else said something? Canada. Canada. Awesome. Okay, now, at this point, if you're wondering, well, why do we do that? I don't blame you. But here's why we did that. Because I want to illustrate what um, you probably have a sense somewhere deep inside you is true. I want to illustrate that we live in a world that is significantly different from the world in which our recent ancestors grew up. You know, your grandma, certainly your great-grandma, did not wear clothes from some of these countries from which you were wearing clothes. In fact, some of these countries did not exist. You know, when my grandma was buying clothes, Bangladesh was not a country. You know, for a while it was just India, and then for a little while it was East Pakistan. It's only been Bangladesh since maybe the 70s. These countries didn't even exist. Now we're wearing clothes produced there. This is indicative. I don't want to make a bigger deal of it than it is, but it is indicative that we live in a world that is interconnected and mixed up and maybe a little crazy feeling, much more so than the way it was 20 years ago or certainly 50 years ago. And it's not like you look back and, oh, life was so sweet and good back then. Life had problems and trouble back then. But the way things are mixed up is different for us right now. And what can happen from that, one of the things, there are many, but one of the things is that there can be a a sense of anxiousness. You know, some of you remember when Corvallis was just us, you know, and you wanted to go someplace strange, you had to go all the way to Portland. But now it's like there are people from everywhere have kind of come in here, and, and you go to Walmart, and there are people from different places. You say, what is, what's going on with this? Now, I happen to like that a lot, that mixed up, diverse kind of living together. Because I grew up in this place in Indiana where it's like totally white people and pretty much totally white farmer people. And, and I'm kind of a good representation of my culture that I grew up in, old fat white guys. You know, that was us. That was who lived there. So I come to some place like Portland or Corvallis and people from all over. And I go, oh, this is so great. And you eat food from different places. And, and I happen to like that. But I understand that it comes with some, some tension sometimes and some, some weirdness. And I have this thought about Oregon. And I don't know Oregon hardly at all. I don't know you guys hardly at all. But I have this sense that, that Oregon is kind of cool and maybe a little progressive and hip. And, and so when you guys think about immigration, you're not thinking about the way some of my friends in Arizona are thinking about. It's like, bar the walls. Let's everybody get armed. And, but, but I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know how that works. And 
Um, so maybe there's a little bit of anxiousness there. And, and so I wonder, how do we follow Jesus in the midst of that? Man, I want to look at some stuff in the Bible this morning, uh, particularly how Jesus is um, working over his 12 disciples. Um, because Jesus was not always nice to these guys. Always loved them super intently. Always had the very best in mind for them. But sometimes they went down paths that the disciples on their own would not have chosen. They would have chosen a different, better road in their minds. And Jesus took them down this path. So I want us to think about how that plays out. And particularly, I want us to think about it in terms of the, the life and the history of a particular set of people. So Cassius, go to that, that first slide. Um, does anybody know? Now, if you were here first service, I don't know why you'd be here again. But if you don't shout out the answer, let's, let's play along with this for a minute. Does anybody know who these guys are? Look familiar to anyone? Go ahead and shout it. I, I don't want to embarrass you. Jews? No? Close, but not quite Jews. Anybody? Rajneeshis? No? Uh-uh. Good try. Thanks for being bold enough to give it a shot. Anyway, you actually, you do know, you do know these people. You just don't know them by identity, maybe. Any other guesses? Samaritans. Who said that? Way to go. Good for you. How did you know? Just brilliant. Thank you very much. Good for you. Um, let me, uh, I didn't want to point out this note-taking outline before I said, or you said, Samaritans, because it's written here. And then, here we go. I think they're Samaritans, young man. Uh, but pull this note-taking outline out, because I want to share some stuff with you that, I, this sounds arrogant as the day is long, but I, some of this stuff I hope maybe you'll want to write down. So I want, that, I want you to have that in front of you. Now, I want, us to, I want to think with you about the Samaritans for a few minutes. Now, if you grew up in church, you have this almost innate sense about Samaritans. How many of you more or less grew up, you know, since you're little kids, you're drug off to church, it's been your thing? I'm not, again, I'm not going to embarrass you. I kind of feel like you're going, dude, I don't know what you're going to do. Has it been a rough couple Sundays of Mission Sundays? Um, you're fine today, all right? Um, so you have this kind of innate sense. So the Samaritans are in the Bible, and I think they were bad guys because the Jews didn't like them, but, well, Jews weren't always good guys, so maybe they weren't bad guys. So I want to kind of sort that out a little bit. At least there's this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The, the Jews thought the Samaritans were unclean, and whenever somebody thinks you're unclean, it's hard, it's hard not to be a little defensive about that. I do not smell bad. And, or it was more ceremonially unclean. So Samaritans didn't like to do so much either. And, and some of that enmity that was there, I think, had some reasonable basis. But some of it had this basis that, from my perspective, I'm no expert, but from my perspective, it just, it's not reasonable at all. So here's some of what was behind that, um, that animosity. When they thought about where they came from, Samaritans, their, their idea of history was that we came from these couple tribes of Israel. And we arrived, we were part of the group. Cash, let's go on to that next slide. We are part of the, the group. We are part of the tribe. We fit in the context of God's people. That's what they thought. That's how they viewed their own origins. In a contrary manner, the Jews thought about the Samaritans that they'd been imported by foreign kings. So they looked at him and they, you are not part of us. You are outsiders who have been, you know, grafted in, not even grafted, just brought in to live in this place. So they felt like you're, you're not part of us. And then there were some other things. Go to the, the next one, Cassius. Um, there came a time, and you know your Bibles, at least to some degree, where God sent the Israelites into exile in Babylonia. And Samaritans didn't get caught up in that. They got to stay. 
So on their part, they're thinking, we're going to guard the faith. We're going to hold the fort. We're going to protect this thing that God has given us. And the, the Jews off in Babylon, maybe they're hoping that somebody guards the faith back in the promised land. But when they get back home, it's not what they'd hoped for. They felt like, you know, the Samaritans felt like they had kept the faith, but, but Israel felt like they hadn't. Some of you have come home, haven't you, to where you left the kids? And the instructions were plain and clear that the house should be clean when you got back. Then you got back and it didn't quite meet up to your standards. And then you're mopping up water and mess and maybe it was just my kids. But it, it kind of like that on a grand scale, the Jews came home and they, you didn't keep the faith. We totally kept the faith. How do you know you weren't here? You, you were being punished. You were gone. And we kept the faith. So there's this animosity kind of came about out of that. Third thing, and this is the one that feels to me, and, and they, neither of these guys care what I feel about this, but it feels to me like it has some validity. And there was a time in the history of Israel and this king, Antiochus Epiphanes, however you pronounce it, he comes in and he's trying to rule everything, including the Jews. So he goes after the Jews and they say, you know what, actually... We, we can't bow down to you because you're a person, and we only bow down to God Most High, so we, we can't bow down to you. And the king, which you would expect, he didn't say, oh, that is such a good point. Okay, I totally hear you. Fine, go ahead. Do, do whatever. No, he said, I will not have that. So he amps up his effort to dominate the Jews, to get them to submit, to get them to worship him. And in the process of that, you know, involves soldiers coming in, people being killed, people being threatened, and, and Samaritans living kind of in that milieu and in, in and about, they sort of turned their backs on the Jews. Soldiers come in, they go, Jews, ah, ah you know, Jews don't live here. I, I think maybe they live over there because we're not Jews, totally not Jews. Yeah, well, you've heard of Jews, but we're, no, no connection here. You know, you know we're fine. And as you might imagine, on the Jews' part, they go, you totally betrayed us. At this point of greatest need, you turned your backs on us. Forget where you came from. Forget how you did or didn't keep the faith while we were gone. At this point of crisis, you turned your backs on us. And that feels to me like a little, you know, betrayal. It feels like some legitimate animosity. To whatever degree it is, those are some of the things that gave rise to the Jews don't like the Samaritans. They think they're unclean. They think they're half-breeds. They think they don't really know the faith. And the Samaritans kind of in defensive response say, who made you king of the world? Who made you boss of us? We don't like you either. And so at the time of Jesus, there's this, this tension. Now, Samaritans are still around today. I don't know if you know this. Maybe 750 Samaritans on the planet. So odds are not good that you're going to bump into one. And so if you don't know any Samaritan, it's, you're safe with that. Um, but they're still here. But they're, they're declining. Maybe a million or so at Jesus' time. Now down to about 700. That was in 2012. So today, you know, sadly, maybe a couple have passed on. They're 745. I don't know. But it's this population is dwindling because they made a pretty solid decision, a strong decision. You can only, if you're a Samaritan, you can only marry within the Samaritan community. Now, it's fine if there's a gazillion of you. You know, if I said you can only marry people who live in America... You go, well, that gives me a few choices. I'm, not, I'm okay with that. But if there are only a 1,000 of you, and presumably roughly half are girls and half are boys, and you want to marry the other, you know, that starts to limit your choices in a hurry. And so much so now that you, know, you, you pick a Samaritan girl to marry, and you have to do these extensive genetic tests, so it's maybe reasonably okay to have kids. Now, recently, they sort of they cracked the door a little bit. If you're Samaritan, you can marry outside the Samaritan community. Specifically, you can find a wife from Ukraine 
I don't know why they picked Ukraine. Maybe they're gorgeous. Maybe you're Ukrainian. Good for you. But that's, that's an option. But for a Ukrainian woman to marry into the community of the Samaritans, she pretty much has to become a Samaritan. Now, some of you have found wives, right? And you know it's a little hard to convince this really, you know, high-capacity woman to marry you. Now, imagine you're trying to get her to marry you, and you say, did, did I mention the whole Samaritan thing? That you have to become a, learn the language, you have to look like my mom, you got to dress like her, cook like her. You had to, oh, did I mention that? Ugh, so it's hard. So kind of sadly, we're living in a day when this community is probably sort of dwindling out of existence. Not only 750 of them, but the influence of this idea, this, this Samaritan word. You know, think about all the hundreds of hospitals that are good Samaritan hospital. Um, Franklin Graham's Samaritan's Purse. The, the, some of the stuff that arises that we think about Samaritans has literally global kind of impact. But just a few of them hanging about. Now, they show up in the Bible in a number of places. Some fun ways and some not so fun ways. Luke 9.51, they tell Jesus that he can't sleep over in their town. Now that doesn't, that doesn't reflect very good on you to say to the Son of God, sorry, you can't stay here, dude. Keep right on going down the road. Now, granted, they didn't know he was the Son of God and he was on his way to Jerusalem, the whole Jew-Samaritan thing. They were annoyed about that. But they said, no, you can't stay here. They show up again. Let's go to the next one. Luke 10.30, uh, Jesus tells this parable. Some Jewish guy comes up and he says, basically, what does, it, what does it mean to be a good Jew? And Jesus goes, let me tell you about a good Samaritan. And you know the story, right? The guy gets beaten and the Jewish guy gets beaten up. And the, the holy guy walks by and goes, ugh, yeah. The other holy guy walks by, ugh, I don't, I don't want to touch that. Samaritan walks by and takes care of him, spends his own money, gets, you know, gets messy with this guy's injuries, indebts himself to the innkeeper on behalf of this guy. What Jesus says to this Jewish guy, you want to know what it looks like to be a good Jew? Good Samaritan. Now, because most of us have heard that story for a long time, let me try to, to give it a little bit of its original punch. Let's imagine, let's say, um, maybe Randall, because he's like the only one on staff of, for you guys that I know. Let's say Randall um, says, we're going to have an evangelism um, study next week. And against your better judgment, you show up for it. And he gets up in front of, of the whole church. He says, you know, I was thinking about how, what's the best way to learn about evangelism? Because it's a very important thing. So I found a couple guys that are, in my mind, the best example in Corvallis of evangelists. So would you welcome Elder Levi and Elder Joshua? And he brings these two Mormon guys up. And he says, they're going to train us in how to do evangelism. Now, I know you're sitting there, you go, that never happened. But imagine... It would happen. And how would, it, how would you feel? Just let some of that emotion kind of emerge. It would be weird. It would be odd. You'd be like, can we do that? I thought we didn't like them because they're not like us. And, and who knows what they do in their church, but I heard it's kind of weird or something. And, and it would just feel so odd for somebody that you respect to say, these guys are good examples. Now multiply whatever emotion that generates by 10 or 100. And that's what the Jews are feeling when Jesus goes, what does it mean to be a good Jew? be a good Samaritan. It's almost incomprehensible that Jesus would lift up these guys as an example. But it goes on. It gets better. Let's go to the next one. Luke 17, 16, Jesus heals 10 lepers. One of them out of the 10 comes back. Jesus goes, I thought there were 10. Weren't there? Did somebody keep track? I thought there were 10. One comes back to say, thank you. And this one, he marks it for everybody listening. And this one is Samaritan. Lifts him up as the good guy. Having done the right thing. Go on to the next one. 
passages, Luke 8, or John 8, 48, Jesus and the, the Pharisees are scuffling about something. I forget what it was, but you know, they're always, they're going at each other about something. The Pharisees trying to get Jesus trapped and, and he just won't have it. He just keeps, you know, dodging their blows and pushing it back at him until they, it's like they become third graders and they just start calling him names because they don't have anything intelligent to say. And they say, isn't it true that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Which is essentially, you're fat and ugly. And, and Jesus, I love what he says back to them. You remember what he says? He goes, oh, no, I do not have a demon. You got that all wrong. But he doesn't say anything about the Samaritan insult. And I love that. Apparently, Jesus is going, I'm cool with being a Samaritan. I like those guys. But the demon thing, you're messed up about that. You're mistaken. I love it that Jesus does that. He lets the Samaritan thing, he'll let it stick. That's fine. I can handle that. Go on to the next one. John chapter 4, story of the woman at the well. I assume that you're pretty familiar with this. Um, I want to dive into this story a little. This is where we're going to camp out most of, of the morning, the time that I have with you. Because this is, I'm pretty sure, my favorite episode in Jesus' entire life. I just love what he does with and for this woman. And in the context of what he's doing uh, with and for his disciples. So it's awesome. Now before we go into that story, I want you to think with me for a little bit um, about who for us today might be parallel to some degree with the Samaritans in Jesus' day. Now, if we assume, you know, we're the, the people of the faith, the way the Jews felt like they were the people of the faith. And so let's say we're kind of in, in the shoes of the Jews here. And, you know, they don't always get portrayed in the most glowing light. So that's a, I don't want to be those guys. I want to be Peter, except when Peter did something stupid. Then I'm somebody else. But, you know, but if we kind of, if our place in some of these stories is with the Jews, who might for us represent the Samaritans? There might be parallel. Let me tell you about me growing up. I said I grew up in Indiana, grew up in this little church for a good chunk of the time I was there. It was an awesome, wonderful church. But it was a little parochial. You know, we did, it was just us, and, and we, I didn't get out much from that church. And, but I knew some stuff about other people. And I looking back, you know, I think I thought some things that were totally Jew towards Samaritan kind of things about some other people in my town, some other Christians either. You know, for example, Catholics. Yeah, Catholics. They don't, they don't really have a relationship with Jesus. They haven't asked Jesus into their hearts. And they, just, they do the, the stuff for memory. It's just like rote memorization. They only eat fish on Friday. What's with that? You know, God says we can eat whatever we want. And gee, they, they keep Jesus on the cross. My Jesus came down from the cross, by golly, and they have him on the cross. And all this stuff. Did I know any Catholics? I didn't know any Catholics. I ever been in a Catholic church. Never been in a Catholic church. But I had these kind of things, these attitudes. Totally thought about them the way the Jews thought about the Samaritans. But it didn't stop there. You know, Presbyterians. I was a Methodist. So the Presbyterians. I don't know about the Presbyterians because I think they drink. I don't know why they drink. Maybe because they're smarter than us. I don't know, but they do, I think. I don't really know, but and so I, I think maybe they're missing the boat a little bit. Or Baptists. Some of you are sort of Baptists. We knew about Baptists. Baptists think once saved, always saved. And you know why they think once saved, always saved? So they can pray a little prayer and then do whatever they want. That's the Baptists. I look back on that, it's just ridiculous. So much out of line with the way Jesus approached the world and thought about the world. But that's kind of some of the stuff swirling around in my head. Now I'm a little older, and I don't think some of those things. I had some exposure to some great stuff in, in those various areas. But is it possible even today there are things like that for me, for us? 
And again, like I said a few minutes ago, I don't really know about Oregon, but I kind of feel like you're a little progressive. And, and so maybe you think that way about Republicans. We know about people in, in Indiana, or red state people, or whatever. Or maybe sometimes think that way about gay people. Or you think that way maybe about Mormons. Or we think that way maybe about charismatic. And I don't know. But is it possible that there are some people in your life about whom you have similar attitudes. And let me just be clear to say this. I don't know you, so I'm not saying this like the Holy Spirit told me to judge you about it. I have no authority to do that. But as we look at this story, what Jesus handled the Jews and the Samaritans, I just want us to wonder, you know, are there people in our lives that we kind of have attitudes toward or we kind of treat like the Jews treated the Samaritans? Specifically, what I wonder about is Muslims. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to people about Muslims, spent at least a little bit of time actually talking to Muslims. And it seems to me, and again, I'm not saying this about you guys at Northwest Hills because I don't know you, but about the church kind of broadly in the U.S., it seems to me that sometimes we walk in the steps of the Jews and their attitudes relative to Samaritans in terms of our attitudes relative to Muslims. And there are some strong parallels between followers of Christ and the followers of Islam. You know, we have this similar religious heritage. We, we trace our, our lineage from where we are back to God through many of the same prophets and up through Abraham and to Adam and to God. So we, kinda, we have this common, the way the Samaritans and Jews had this common religious lineage. We have commonality in terms of some of our key values. You want to find pro-life people? The Muslims are the pro-life people. You want to find people with good family values? Muslims are people with good family values. So we have a lot in common, the way the Jews had stuff in common with Samaritans. But we also have some animosity. And like the Jews and Samaritans, I think some of that animosity is, is probably well-deserved. You know, some of you, because I don't know your lives, some of you may have literally been shot at by a Muslim. If I had literally been shot at by a Muslim, I would have some feelings to work through. That's not right, dude. I don't like that. Don't do that anymore. You know, I have friends who've had Muslims put guns to their head and say, you ready to die? <laughs> and that's just wrong. And that, in my mind, is, yeah, that's legitimate cause for some animosity. Now, if you harbor it and you nurture it and you grow it up, and it's going to destroy your life, but, but I can see how that would be there. But some of the angst or the, the concern, maybe the fear that, that I find in the American church, even in my life at times, it's not valid. It doesn't have a solid basis. It's been amped up by the information that's generated in the world these days, driven by news that's driven by fear. You know, if, if the lead-in for the news at 1030 is, things went pretty good in, the, in your town today, tune in after the commercials. You're going to go, sweet, I'm going to bed. But if... Hell is coming to visit Corvallis. The sky is falling. We're all going to die. Tune in after commercials or details. Oh, I got to find out. And we've done that with Muslims. Muslims are our, our boogeyman of the day. We've amped this thing up. And some of it, I will grant, there's, you know, Muslims have done some terrible things. But my experience has been, my personal experience has been that Muslims have fed me yummy food right around the planet. From the U.S., from Michigan, to England, to Holland, to Turkey, different places in North Africa, to the Middle East, to Pakistan, to India, to Malaysia, back around to California. 
Muslims have said, oh, this is really yummy. Eat it. And they weren't trying to trick me. They weren't trying to poison me. They're just trying to be nice. So that has been my contact. So I, I realize that some of this stuff, there's some validity there. Some of it, I got to question it. I got to say, I don't know if I'm being fed the full story. Now, all of that leads me to say this. The question for us, in light of that, in light of a crazy world, in light of this, these potential, you know, I submit that there are these parallels, so if that's true, in light of these parallels between the Jews and Samaritans and us and Muslims, our question is, how do we follow Jesus in light of that? Now, this is what I want you to think about this morning. And I'm not even going to tell you this is how we follow Jesus. I'm just saying, here's what it seems that Jesus is doing. And if we're going to follow Jesus, then we've got we to gotta process. How do we do that? So let's go to this story for a minute. I'm just going to tell you. Yeah, Bibles, right? You can read this, make sure I'm not leading you astray. But it's kind of a long story. So I'm going to paraphrase it for you a little bit. So Jesus is on his way, another scuffle with the Pharisees. They're trying to count who's baptizing more. And so let's just go to Galilee. Let's get away from these bozos for a little bit. So they head up. John says they had to go through Samaria. Usually good Jews routed around Samaria, but they're going through. Jesus is tired. He sits down at this well about noon. Disciples go into the village nearby to get some food. And Jesus initiates a conversation with this woman. It's so amazing. He goes, hey, give me a drink. And she goes, Dude, I'm not stupid. You're a Jew. And, and, and you don't ask me for a drink. If I give you a drink, you're going to go, ooh, icky cooties. And you're going to knock it on my hand. You know, I don't, I'm not going to do this. And he goes, you know what? If you knew who you're talking to and this living water that I have, you'd ask me for it and I would give it to you. And she started going, this is a little odd. You know, this does not happen every day. And you know, she comes out to the well at noon when nobody else comes out to the well for all kinds of uh, who knows what kinds of reasons. And she's having this amazing, odd conversation. And Jesus is just kind of relentless with her. She goes, now, where are you going to get this water? You know, my, my forefather, Jacob, dug this well. Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? And I think in Jesus' mind, he, he may have thought, well, I beat him at wrestling one time. Uh, but <laughs> good for you, knowing your Bibles. But he just keeps pushing her just relentlessly until they get to the end of the conversation. And she kind of jumps out of the ring. She's been feisty. She's been engaging. But she kind of bails out. And he goes, she goes, oh, listen. And I can just imagine her putting her hands up. When the Messiah comes... He's going to sort this out. It's like, I give. I'm done with this. And Jesus' response to her, this amazing, phenomenal gift, more explicitly, I think, than anywhere else in the Gospels. He looks at her, he says, this Messiah, the one you're talking about, I am he. He gives that gift to this woman who had three strikes against her. She's a woman in a man's culture. She's a Samaritan in a Jew's culture. She's got whatever past that has caused her to be out there that Jesus kind of digs into. And to her, Jesus gives this gift, this gift of listening to her. Show that quote, Cassius, uh, this is author David Oxford. He says, being listened to, which is what Jesus does with this woman, being listened to is so much like being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Jesus listens, converses with this woman, and he gives her this gift of saying, I am the Messiah. Stunning. So what he is telling her, what he is showing to his disciples who show up about this time, they go, oh, man, I knew we should have left somebody with him to keep him out of trouble. We all went. That was a dumb move. And what is he doing with this woman? She kind of picks up the vibe. She goes back to the village. She also goes back to the village to get everybody to come out and meet this guy who read her mail. And what the disciples may have begun to, to see and what we can see clearly from our vantage point, the way Jesus interacts with her, the way Jesus lifts Samaritans up as the good guys in the stories, Jesus loves Samaritans. Now, for the disciples, I was just almost beyond belief that this guy they're staking their reputation on, he loves 
Samaritans. Now, in the parallel, the application for us is that God loves Muslims. Now, if I ask you, you think God loves Muslims? Don't you go, yeah, I think so. But I want that to sink in a little bit. I want you to hear it from the Holy Spirit a little bit this morning, that God, for real and true, loves Muslims. Even the bad ones, even the ones who have done unthinkable acts of violence, God loves Muslims. We need that to be sunk into us because it's hard to love people we're afraid of. It's hard to love people that we think are God's enemies. And like Jesus loved the Samaritans, like God loves the Muslims, God is calling us to follow Jesus in that regard and to love Muslims. Now, the story goes on. So the disciples get back, and they say, Jesus, we brought you food. And we supersized it because we think you're super. And Jesus goes, I've got food you don't know about. And they go, oh, man. The disciples could not get on the plane Jesus is operating on. And I cut him some slack because I've been trying to follow Jesus for 30 years or something. And I can't get on the plane Jesus is on. These guys had a few months. And they go, who brought you food? And you just hear them whining, who brought him food? We went in there, it was scary, and we spent our money on this stuff. I don't even know it's good stuff. We got it for you, and you're not going to eat it. And, and Jesus kind of gets into this philosophical teaching sort of mode. And he goes, you know what you guys say? You say it's four months and then the harvest. Later on, mignon, sometimes it's going to happen. But I tell you, lift up your eyes. And I think when he says it, when he says, lift up your eyes, he kind of points them back to that village where they had gone and they grabbed the food, ran away because it was scary and weird people there. And they got back. And here comes this woman at the head of a good chunk of the whole village out to meet this guy that she's told them about. And the dust of their feet's rising up like, like, like ripe cotton. And Jesus goes, the fields are white for harvest. You guys missed it. I sent you in there to reap a harvest that other people had planted. It was my gift for you today, and you guys missed it. And what Jesus is saying here to them, and again, almost beyond their capacity to believe it, he said, I have in mind to bring a ton of Samaritans into my kingdom. They have a place. They belong in my kingdom. Disciples just go, how can that be? And again, the parallel for us today, God has in mind to bring tons of Muslims into his kingdom. Now, you're probably not going to catch that on NPR. And you're probably not going to see that on CNN. You're definitely not going to see it on Fox, that God is at work in the Muslim world. But I want you to know, I've been at this for, yeah, 25 years or so. And what is happening right now, stuff that we have never seen happen before. Not just never in my little career, never in history. Let me tell you a personal example. Um, As you know, uh, there are tons of Saudi Arabian students coming to the U.S., and I don't know why, but I am seriously thankful for it. Maybe 100,000 Saudi students in the U.S. right now, a bunch of them right at OSU. God's bringing these Saudis in here, and I believe we are full-on going to see the kingdom of Saudi Arabia changed in our lifetime because of this dynamic. When people like you and like me reach out and say, you know how Jesus, you know Jesus from the Quran, and, and well, Jesus has changed my life, and, and this is what it means for me to follow him, and, and, and people take Jesus back to Saudi. It's going to be a big splash. I can't wait to see that unfold. 
So back in my town, Indiana, where I used to live, we heard these Saudi students were coming to our school. And our school is like not really popular for anything, but we have a decent beginning level English. So students will come from other places in the world, do our, our crash English course, and as soon as they can fill out applications for cool schools like OSU, then they get out of Dodge. But we have this little bit of time where we can hang out. So we thought, we should do an English club because these Saudi students need to learn English. So we, we formed this club. We made flyers. We translated them to Arabic. We posted them all over campus. We bought snacks. We found a room. We got together the first night, nobody showed up. So we were all sad. We ate all our snacks. I know you never do that. Eat because you're sad. But we ate because we were sad. And we were happy for four and a half minutes till we were sadder. And next week, nobody showed up. Third week, four guys showed up, all of whom were from Saudi Arabia. Yay! All of whom spoke better English than any of the Americans. So they didn't come back. What are we, like fourth week, fifth week, one guy showed up, Ali. And he kept coming back because he, he needed some help with his English. And there were like five of us and one of Ali. And after a while, we just felt like, this is a little absurd, right? This feels a little odd. So let's just, let's scrap the club. I'll hang out with Ali. So Ali and I became friends. And we would hang out. We we're sitting in the student union one day. And he was telling me about when they first came to America. He said, when we first got here, we lived in a hotel for a little bit. And in a drawer in the hotel room, I found a Bible. And he kind of leaned over and we whispered, like contraband. You know, like back in the day, you find a bag of marijuana. In Colorado now, you go, sweet, good for me. But back in the day, <laughs> it, was, it was like, I found this Bible. And in my mind, I'm going, yay, Gideons. You know, I thought you were irrelevant, but you're not. You're doing it. Good for you. And, and he said, so I read it. And we're leaning over. He's kind of whispering. I read it. And you guys have the same stories we have. I said, yeah, isn't that great? He said, yeah, you have Mary and Joseph. We have Mary and Joseph. Yeah, isn't that awesome? He said, when do you guys get together and read the Bible? And I could, I could not think broadly enough. He was just like, he, he was asking when we have church. I said, when do we have church? He goes, I don't know, maybe, I guess. So we do Sunday morning, Sunday evening. I went, do you want to come to church? Oh, I said, do you want to come to church? He goes, yeah. I said, no way, this Saudi Raven guy kind of invited himself to my church. So Sunday morning is kind of flashy, splashy, and Sunday evening is a little more subdued. So I come to Sunday evening. So he came to Sunday evening. And, um, you know, he got there. I didn't think they'd probably show up, maybe, but they did show up. And, and then I was all concerned because when my pastor preaches this pro-Israel sermon, he's all offended. But it was just beautiful and, and totally great. And God, can they read the Bible? Can they sing the songs? But they kind of tried to do it. And, and it was just wonderful. Service lets out. We're walking out. My mind's going 100 miles an hour. What now? What now? What now? What now? What now? Because I don't have any faith. I mean, what now? And, and Ali looked at me and he goes, so, same time next week? I <laughs> No way. And he, just, he became part of our church. And they had a baby. And so we do this thing at our church in Indiana because they have lots of babies. We, we feed the family for a couple weeks. So we fed them for a couple weeks. So our people got to learn how to make green beans without bacon, which is almost unthinkable to an Indiana person. And <laughs> wonderful. Now, that's an example of this thing that God is doing that is huge. Let me blow it out a little bit farther. You know Syria and the tragedy Syria's been going through uh, for the past year, pushing on to two years now. I have a friend who lived in Syria for upwards of 15 years, lived in Damascus, and every prayer letter he would send back is like, pray with us that one family will come to Christ. And after a while, you know what? Frankly, you get tired of writing that prayer letter. You don't have anything to show for it. And it gets a little burdensome to read it. Nothing, hardly anything happened. And now he's reporting, he's back in the U.S., but very connected to Syria and what's going on. Among the Syrian refugees, a million, million and a half, two million, something like that, they're beginning to come to Christ. They're beginning to find hope and life out of this amazing despair. So he gets his email. We baptized a Syrian guy last week. We baptized a Syrian family. We baptized Syrian families this week. God is gathering Syrians into his kingdom out of the midst of the tragedy and the desperation of what's going on there right now. 
blow it out a little bigger. There's this guy, David Garrison, is a global level researcher, and he's given his career to researching movements to Christ. And he defines a movement when thousands of people begin to follow Jesus and form hundreds of churches in a relatively short amount of time. And he's applied that kind of research to the Muslim world. And he said, in the first 1,300 years of Islam, there have been, he can find, one unforced movement to Christ among Muslims. There have been some forces where people said, you can get killed or you can get baptized. What do you think? I get baptized. And that that happened, regrettably. But he said, in the first 1,300 years, one unforced movement to Christ. So that leads up to 1980. From 1980 to the year 2000, subsequent 20 years, he said, I found about seven unforced movements to Christ in the Muslim world, which is a wonderful bump up from one 20 years compared to 1,300 years, but relative to the billion and a half Muslims on the planet, you go, that's not that big a deal. But then from the year 2000 to now, you want to guess? Just in your mind, roll it around. 71 movements to Christ in the Muslim world. 71 situations where thousands of Muslims have come to Christ forming hundreds of churches in the past 12 or 13 years. Now, some of you are decent with math, and you're already plotting that graph in your head. 1,300 years, one. It is pretty flat, right? And then 20 years, and it goes up to seven. And then 12 years, it goes to 71. Let it run in your mind for another 10 years, another 25 years. A lot of us will live 25 more years. God keeps that up. We live in a totally different planet. I want you to know, sometimes in spite, certainly in addition to whatever you hear on the news, your God is at work in unprecedented ways in the Muslim world. Ways that I have dreamed and hoped and prayed for that countless others long before me have dreamed and hoped and prayed for. God is extending his blessing to the Muslim world. God is inviting Muslims into his kingdom in ways that we have never seen before. And I could hardly be happier about that. So when I invite you to participate in that, it's not like, oh, this is the worst thing and you're going to die, but people think you're great because you died trying to do it. It's more like, looks like God's doing this. You want to jump on board? Don't miss it. Don't miss this thing that God is doing. So Jesus is telling the disciples, God's telling us, I have in mind for tons of Muslims to come into my kingdom. Now let's go on and kind of wrap this story up. Everybody gets out there. And they're talking to Jesus. Jesus is teaching them. Apparently, John was so stressed out, he forgot to write it down because he didn't give as much details. But the guys say, now we believe this guy because what he said to us and not just what you say to the the woman. And they're saying, Jesus, can you come and hang out with us for a few days in the village? And you just got to imagine the disciples. They're in the back going, no, 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 you can't do that. Let's, Let's do coffee. And just let's see how it goes. We can't go. We bought all the clean food. There's nothing kosher to eat there. And frankly, there's no place to go to the bathroom where good Jewish boys can go to the bathroom. We cannot go and hang. And Jesus, I, I can just imagine looking at the disciples going, you're going to love this. He goes, all right, we'll stay for a couple days. And so I was like, oh, God. It just kills them. I don't know how they're going to do this. Jesus takes them into this personal experience. Now, let me float this possibility out. And again, I don't know you. I'm not the Holy Spirit, like I have to say that at this point, right? But what if God has in mind for you to have some kind of personal experience with some Muslims? Now, I would just guess in a group this big, some of you do, good for you, keep at it. Bring the rest of us along with you. But if you don't, if you don't know any Muslims, if you never had a conversation, never really thought, never prayed, what if God said, I want you to respond to this a little bit? Can I just wrap up for maybe like three or four minutes and say, here are some ways that God might 
equip you, release you to step into this harvest that he's bringing about in the Muslim world. Now, on your note-taking outline, down here at the bottom, there's this thing that says, find the links here. If you go to this URL, some of these things I'm going to mention, um, I've got some hyperlinks there. You can go and click on it and go to these things that I mentioned. The first thing that you can do to, to play into what God is doing is to pray. I don't care how well you know Jesus at all. You can say, Jesus, sounds like you're doing some cool stuff for Muslims. Go for it. Good for you. Keep doing it. Bless these efforts. You can get this. You guys have the coolest printed stuff of any church on the planet. You know, I bring along a black and white outline. I feel like I came from 1985. You know, get this thing and pray for your people. Pray for what's going on from here into the world. If you don't mind, do this with me. This thing that says official tear off for more info. Can we all just tear that off together? It'll be the last kind of corporate communal thing that we do this morning. But grab that if you have it. Give it a crease. You chewed off your thumbnail, let your, let your wife crease it for you, and tear that off. If you want some of this info to help you figure out, Jesus, what kind of steps do you want me to take? If God's saying, take some steps in response to this, and you're safe, God's not saying respond to this, just let it float. You know, I, I don't mind. I want God to do what he wants to do with you and with me. But here's what these things are. If you want some information about my organization, Frontiers, put a check mark by that. And I'll send you an email say, oh, Frontier's a great organization. I think God is saying for you to go. I won't do that. But it is a fun organization. I'd love for you to know about it. If you want to get our family's newsletter, check that one. If you want to um, get this easing that I write for, just kind of a weekly reminder that you're into what God is doing in the world. Check that, and I'll, I'll put you on that list. If you want to know how you can pray for me, check that last one. And then you can put these in the offering box on your way out. And so if you always feel bad because you walk by the box, you don't put a check in, it's roughly the size of a check. Most people won't know. Just go, (laughs) drop it in there um, on your way. So here's what you can do. You can pray, and I would value your prayers for me. I'm not the only one who needs prayer. A lot of people need prayer. I'd love for you to pray for me. Maybe God's saying, I'd like you to have a conversation with a Muslim. This training thing is going to start. It's in your program here on the back, the world at your doorstep. And you go, I kind of wish they would be down the street or next town over, but they are here. So go to this thing, April 6th to May 18th. Some of my best friends in Corvallis are going to do a whole session on how do you relate to Muslims? How do you start a conversation? How do you not fight with Muslims? Because who really wants to do that? But how do you be friends with Muslims? And these guys are experts. They've done it in Malaysia. They've done it here for years. George and Carol Weaver, some of you know them. They're going to be here to lead that session. So find out how to do it. Sometimes there's this implication. If you want to be effective in the world, you've got to go far away. L.A. is almost like cheating. Sao Paulo, definitely, that's out of the country. So you're good there. But you've got to go to the Middle East. And you go, I can't go to the Middle East. Maybe you physically can't go. Maybe you're just afraid, so you blame it on something else. I've got a house and a job. You know, whatever. But most of us aren't going to do that. But God has brought the whole world here In the form of international students, God has brought the whole world into your living room on Facebook. I have friends that are engaging in spiritual conversations that are blessing and leading Saudi Arabians to Jesus over Facebook. Time was we had good excuses. I'm too sick to go. Too bad. I'll just stay at home. That was close. And God said, you know, that was a good excuse a little bit ago. Not anymore. If God's calling you to connect, there are ways that you can connect. So go to that URL, check some of those links about how you can really actually relate to Muslims. Last statistic I want to give you. I think this is the second and the last, because I'm no good with statistics and people hate them. And for me, statistics is basically more than, less than. But here's a statistic. Eight or nine 
out of every 10 Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists on the planet do not know a Christian. Just let that sink in for a minute. Eight or nine out of every 10 Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists on the planet do not know somebody who loves Jesus. And that's flat out wrong. That should not be that way. So if you don't know the whole answer, and I don't know the whole answer to these issues, but I do know this, I can slide up next to a Muslim and I can say, welcome to Corvallis. Welcome to Colorado. Welcome to America. What's it like to be here? Where did you come from? How's it going here? Tell me about, um, tell me about Islam. I've never had much of a chat with a Muslim. You guys have one God, right? We have one God. How cool is that? You like Jesus. We totally love Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. You know, Jesus told this story. And then tell him the story of the Good Samaritan. We have opportunity. And we have this great possibility that God is right now, today, gathering Muslims into his kingdom. So bless you guys as you, you follow through with this. As you walk the road God has laid out before you. It's not your, your road's not my road. I, I get that. But your road is fraught with possibility. It's full of great opportunity. Let me pray with you and I'll be done. Father, I thank you so much that you have caused us to live here and you've caused us to live now because we recognize, Lord, that this is an amazing day. And we're grateful, Father, that we live where we do when we do. And God, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives, that you have bought us back from death, that you have brought us into your kingdom. And I thank you, Father, that you're doing that on behalf of so many Muslims right now. Lord, for the Muslims that you have brought to Corvallis, I pray that you would connect them with people who love Jesus. Lord, I pray that some of those people would be people sitting right here this morning. And God, that you would open the door so obviously that even the densest among us would go, "Ah, I think God's up to something here. And give us grace and courage to walk through those doors. And Lord, may the name of Christ extend throughout the Muslim world. May you gather in this great harvest that you desire. May you find us faithful to play our part in it, Lord, whatever that part may be. For your glory, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.